0: From this first job, I'm going to figure out how to use technology for U.S. manufacturers to help them save and create middle class jobs. And that happened here. So if you're a young, if you're a brand new engineer, if you are a technician who's converting into the engineering world. If you are a uh, graduate student, if you are a manufacturing engineer who just did your first co-op, you are where I was when I made the decision that I'm a mission-driven person. So what I did was I charted out a plan so that I could eventually end up where I am today, which is teaching manufacturers how to leverage technology to do more with less. The arc of my career, we're back. Take zero. All right, so this is the first live video we have shot in a year, right? Almost a year. Zach flew out to Dallas last night, and uh, we have a list of videos we want to shoot today live, stuff that's been on our list for a long time. We are happy to be back in front of the whiteboard. You may or may not notice that we're actually in a a new office. We moved locations, so this is the first time Zach is seeing the new uh, Carrollton-based office in Texas. So... In this video, what I'm gonna do is uh, we get I've gotten a ton of questions on the Discord server about my career. A lot of people who are either doing their graduate work right now, writing their thesis, doing double E or they're manufacturing engineers, and they they've done their co-ops, they've done their internships, and now they wanna they wanna get more information. Those, those co-ops and internships were with manufacturers. And they've found our community, our Industry Ford Auto community, and they want more information about my career. How did I end up where I am? So we've done this in the, if you want to see where I initially talked about this, you can click on the link to the what is an expert video where I kind of go over my career and talk about my bona fides and my credentials and why it is I preach what I preach and I know what I know and why it is I'm an expert in the field. But I'm going to go over it in more detail in this video. So on the left-hand side, we just have the arc of time from when my, when my education started, which really was in 1980, 1981, um, up until present day, left-hand side. I was born in, in Texas, I'm from Dallas, Texas. I moved to upstate New York when I was seven years old after my mom got murdered. Um, and uh, I was adopted by a family in New York. My mom actually got murdered in New York. We moved there, she got murdered in New York, and then I had to stay there. So um, I got adopted by a family there. My, my mother's death and what I experienced as a childhood, in my childhood made me values and mission driven. So what does that mean? What that means is that I have a, a core set of values that I live by, which is transparency, authenticity, expertise, humility, and servant leadership. When I was seven years old, I didn't have those values. I had some of those values. And as I grew in my, my young age, I acquired new values from mentors, from my adoptive parents, from my siblings, from my experiences. And I have lived my entire professional career under those five core values. And we'll do a whole other separate video about why, how being a values-driven person or a mission-driven person can drive your career and make you successful and help you have a meaningful life in your career. All right. So I did my primary education in upstate New York at the same time the manufacturing exodus was happening. Okay, so when you hear about the Rust Belt in the United States, the Rust Belt is the area of the United States that used to be heavy industry and is no longer heavy industry and most of that is in the northeastern united states so this is places like buffalo new york rochester syracuse the southern tier this is cleveland ohio this is pittsburgh this is the, when you talk about those places that's called that's called the rust belt in the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s we had a manufacturing exodus from the rust belt to lower cost lower labor areas in the United States manufacturers moved to places like Research Triangle Park in North Carolina which had much cheaper labor they had much lower leg- regulatory environment a lot cheaper taxes so in in 1993 uh, when I moved to North Carolina to do my my undergraduate work, I uh, lived in Raleigh for five years. When I moved to North Carolina to do my undergraduate work, that was at the exact same time that Raleigh, North Carolina was voted by Money Magazine, the best place in America to live. It was called the best place in America to live because of the manufacturing exodus where companies moved from the Rust Belt to that area. At the same time, they were also moving to Mexico, they were moving to China, they were moving to Vietnam, they were moving to India to get cheap labor. Okay, so I grew up in an environment where my friends, uh, my friends' families, uh, all of the working class Americans that uh, all the people I knew of who were working class, because I was working class, their families went from being middle class and upper middle class to working at gas stations and working on farms. Why? Because of the manufacturing exodus. Part of that was poor strategic decisions from companies like Kodak and Smith Corona. Cortland, New York, for example, um, was a was a bastion of manufacturing for a very long time, very big in um, fasteners and big in typewriter manufacturing, Smith Corona. And they made strategic decisions that ended up killing their operations. Smith Corona didn't die because they couldn't afford to, they couldn't compete with cheaper typewriters. They died because they believed that no one would adopt computers. They didn't move to become a technology company and it ultimately killed them. Eastman Kodak did the exact same Thing Eastman Kodak, they had an opportunity. They owned the original patents to digital cameras, technology-driven cameras, and they believed that no one would ever abandon film. So they didn't adopt they wanted technology. To sell the film. That's right. They wanted to sell the film. That's what they did. They, they, they couldn't. Kodak and Smith Corona, those, those types of companies, could not get out of their own way. Okay, but other companies like Magna, which is a automotive supplier, IBM, they were forced to, they, they believed that they were forced to go chase cheaper labor. And, and the reason why they had to do that was because they didn't do what Americans do best, which is innovate, okay? So I observed personally growing up in a trailer park in a working class family and, and having working class peers i watched them go from living in the type of house i wanted to live in growing up to living in the kind of house i was living in okay and that was because of the manufacturing exodus so that was my experience all right i started acquiring my values during that period okay of transparency authenticity expertise humility and servant leadership when i graduated from high school i went to an elite institution initially in upstate new york I was a good student in high school and I, I went to an elite institution and, but I didn't belong there. It, it boiled down to, you know, I was going to school with a bunch of rich kids I couldn't relate to. And that was when I really discovered that there were two worlds in America. There was the, the world of the haves and the world of the have nots. So I transferred to, I moved to North Carolina, which is where the manufacturing exodus went. And that's when I discovered what was happening in North Carolina was they initially moved there for cheap labor. But then they started to innovate their businesses. So when pharmaceutical companies moved there, Research Triangle Park was, a, is, was and is a technology hub in the United States. And that's, and that's why a lot of manufacturers went there. They went there to get the resources who, had the, who could drive technological improvement in their businesses. So I observed that. I started studying sociology and history, doing my undergraduate work because I was gonna teach. I learned through my, socio, my sociology education, some groundbreaking information growing up i believe manufacturers were leaving because of corporate greed and if you ask most people they're going to say yeah they left because they're greedy if you ask trade unions or if you ask the the unions who represented the employees they're going to tell you no management was just greedy that just isn't true that simply isn't the case company american companies who employ americans want to keep employing americans i deal with executives in my career now all the time. And it is one of their primary goals. They care about employing Americans, but at the end of the day, it's a business. And in, and in order for them to be successful, to continue to employ Americans, they have to figure out how to do more with less. That is the, the name of the game in, in manufacturing, in sales, in product development. It is figuring out how to provide more value for less costs. It really boils down to that piece. So while I was studying sociology, I discovered that piece, that manufacturers started, they started migrating away from the rust belt simply because we didn't do what Americans do best, which is innovate. We didn't use technology. We didn't leverage technology to do more with less. The organizations themselves either didn't have the technological resources or they didn't have the political capital to make that move. And that's why those those manufacturers didn't survive in the Northeast. So after I completed my undergraduate work, I got my first job. I moved back to upstate New York and I got my first job working in a salt mine as a laborer, okay? And so I was just shoveling belts. It was just a good paying job uh, in a salt mine, in heavy industry. It was my first foray into uh, working in industry or any type of manufacturing. We basically drilled, into natural resources, blew up the salt, and then we, you, it was used to uh, to salt the roads during the wintertime. I worked my way through college. Obviously, I got scholarships, but I also worked my way through college. One backup piece, I worked in an arcade for a couple of years while I was in college, and I, I got a certification in five volt DC systems so that I can maintain like pinball machines and that kind of stuff. So now, I and, and one of the things that I learned during that process was I could learn. I learned how to write, uh, read IEC drawings. So uh, specifically the types of drawings you see coming out of, like, Germany, that kind of stuff, electrical drawings. So while I was working in mining, they had this new type of mining equipment. I worked for a company called Cargill Deicing icing um, from 2000 to 2005, I think is when I left. And they had this new mining equipment called SMAG Mining Equipment, which was all... PLC operated and remote control. There were two types of mining equipment in that mine. You had conventional equipment, which was uh, hydraulic over hydraulic control. So it was just basically manual control. So the scalers, the drills, the roof bolters, they were all manual. They were all hydraulic over hydraulic control. There was no electrical control. There was no automation. That equipment was really, really expensive to maintain. So leaked lots of hydraulic fluid. It was bad for the environment, all this kind of stuff. At the same time, the company invested in this new German technology called SMAG, which was PLC controlled. It was electric over hydraulic and it was all remote control operated. So the operator didn't have to stand on the machine. He got to stand away from the machine holding a remote control. The problem is the the technological resources that Cargill had in the mine at that time could not support that equipment. They were good at supporting hydraulic over hydraulic control but they didn't have any experience supporting um, the electric over hydraulic control with the plc control neither did i just by sheer luck i when i was a laborer i was working in the maintenance department as a lube truck operator so i drove the lube truck around and i filled up all the equipment with hydraulic fluid okay one of the things an interesting story that no one's ever heard before is when when i would fill up the conventional equipment that was hydraulic over hydraulic it would it leaked a lot of hydraulic fluid so i would have to fill up a lot of hydraulic fluid into those equipment each shift okay but if i when i went to the electric over hydraulic equipment the smag equipment that they use flow control valves instead of, uh, of pilot controlled valves. They used flow control valves that were electric controlled and they leaked a lot less hydraulic fluid. They had a lot less moving parts. And so A, there was a massive amount of cost that, that Cargill was spending on hydraulic fluid alone just to keep running this old equipment. And while it, used, it required more electricity to run the new equipment, it, the net gain was, it was that it was a lot cheaper to run the new equipment. The problem is they couldn't support it. So it just so happened that we had a roof bolter that hadn't run in about a year. Long story short, the, because I could read the German drawings, my supervisor, a guy named Joe Rolf, who's had a huge, who had a huge role in my career, he asked me to go with an electrician and, re, and translate the drawing for him while he tried to troubleshoot this roof bolter. Long story short, over the course of three days, the electrician gave up, I did not, and I fixed the, I fixed the machine. It hadn't run in a year year and a half it literally sat in a a a reliever and i fixed it after three days i had i didn't know anything about three phase electricity i knew nothing about industrial controls i didn't know what a plc was but i could read the drawing i could troubleshoot the problem i fixed it after three days it was just a short and a piece of conduit i was able to fix it i hit the button and it and it drilled and and all from that moment forward this guy who had a degree in sociology. Who was a laborer working in the maintenance department became the guru fixing this equipment, and this is a true story. And anybody who worked with me at Cargill is going to know. Yep, that's exactly how Walker got introduced to industrial controls. So while I was in mining, I had a, an exponential growth curve um, when it comes to industrial controls. I I learned. I became an electrical apprentice, and I learned three phase. I over the course of the five years, I Um, I finished my apprenticeship. At the same time, a light bulb came on at me, for me, while I was in mining. And that's where my mission was discovered. My mission was, I could turn around this manufacturing exodus. I could take what it is that I experienced as a kid, what I learned in college, and what I discovered in my very first job in industry, and I could help save and create middle-class jobs in the United States. I could turn around, the experience that I had as a kid. And so my mission became, from this first job, I'm going to figure out how to use technology for US manufacturers to help them save and create middle-class jobs, and that happened here. So if you're a young, if you're a brand new engineer, if you are a technician who's converting into the engineering world, if you are a uh, graduate student, if you are a manufacturing engineer who just did your first co-op, you are where I was when I made the decision that I'm a mission-driven person. So what I did was I charted out a plan to to learn everything I could as quickly as I could so that I could eventually end up where I am today, which is teaching manufacturers how to leverage technology to do more with less. I own 44 companies today, five of those companies are centered around industrial automation, and I have um, 39 companies that are just completely unrelated to industrial automation. But our all of our mission is to help save and create middle class jobs, and they're all based on the same core values I acquired when I was a kid. So what I did, my plan is actually charted here. It actually worked out exactly the way I laid it out. Some of the years are off a little bit, but my initial plan was I wanted to go back to school and get a double E in electric, uh, electrical engineering. So what I did was while I was in mining, i went to grad school to get a graduate degree in education i got a master's in education because i was going to teach i discovered that i couldn't i didn't have the temperament to teach young kids so then what i did was i um i completed that graduate work at the same time that i started working on a double e while i was working in mining and the cool thing about cargill was that my mine manager um, a guy named steve horn he he made a lot of accommodations so that i could you know, come to work 30 minutes late, you know, so after class uh, so that I, and that I would work second shift. I'd work 2:30 to 10:30. I moved to third shift some of the semesters, but I worked full-time and went to school full-time acquiring my education. At the same time I started working with um, our local Rockwell distributor. Um, I started programming the conveyor automation, the screen plant automation. I started learning a lot about HMI SCADA in this mining phase. I also charted out my plan. I wanted to go to the four core industrial processes, which is a slow speed, dirty process, a high speed, dirty process, a slow speed, clean process, and a high speed, clean process. That, that's what I sketched out. And this is the course of my career. When I, when I felt, when I, when I was in mining, I was in a, like an electrical technician position the whole time, I was not an engineer yet. I. Uh, as soon as I felt like I wasn't growing anymore, I didn't learn anymore, I learned everything I needed to learn about mining and I was using my skills to help them innovate and I had as much as I could, I, I made a shift. As soon as I felt I was plateauing, I made the shift to the next, I went to the next industry. So I went from a slow speed dirty process to a high speed dirty process in printing. I selected printing for two reasons. Number one, I, wanted, I didn't have any motion control experience. And number two, I didn't have any experience with Profibus. Everything here was Data Highway Plus, and we were just doing a little bit of Ethernet IP initially. I cut my teeth on Rockwell and um, rsv 32 and all that kind of stuff here in mining. In printing, I moved over. I started learning Siemens, high-speed dirty process, how that process works. I started learning Profibus and Profinet. I built a, um, a plant-wide supervisor control and data acquisition system that also incorporated the art department while I was in this printing facility. When I felt I plateaued there, I got a, a lucky two, uh, d- during the economic downturn in the late 2000, um, uh, an opening came up at Newcore Steel that was partially electrical technician uh, and half engineering. I went to the steel industry and I can't remember how long I was at Nucor, three, three, four years. And that was the first time that I went to, um, I, went, I went to a heavy industry position. So I was originally gonna do a, a clean process, but I ended up saying, I, I'm going to do uh, an, a heavy industry. While I was at Nucor Steel, that's when I built um, um, a, my first scalable self-aware SCADA system. One, um, one in the melt shop um, and then one in the, um, in the rolling mill. At the same time, I also integrated 100% camera coverage of the process into that SCADA system. This was the first time that I really started working with data acquisition and data analysis, with, and and outputting digitized values to people in the plant. And the and the and the ultimate um, gainer here for Nucor Steel was reduced downtime. That was absolutely the biggest piece. There was no like scheduling optimization or anything like that yet. Plant safety, right? Well, and I, there was my six month period there, and, and my career nearly got derailed in Nucor because. I was afraid someone was going to die, and that you can watch my whole, you know, the infamous email story when I was at Newcore Steel. I left Newcore Steel for a full-time engineering position in Tier One Automotive, um, and I was a product engineer there. So we were a Tier One Automotive um, supplier who supplied chain to U.S. car manufacturers, but we were also an OEM. Um, this at Newcore Steel and at and at the Tier One Automotive supplier I work are a Tier One uh, called Borg Warner Automotive. I that's when I learned everything about what's wrong in our industry. So that is what's wrong with Rockwell's business model? What's wrong with uh, Wonderware's business model? What is why is it that innovation is being choked in the industry? That's when I learned that here. I left Borg Warner Automotive and I moved to systems integration. So that's when I came back to Texas. All of this is while I was in New York. Bought my home, started my family, started raising my kids, and then we came back to Texas, and that's when I moved into systems integration. I worked for another systems integrator. I started, so when I started in systems integration, I basically took what I had learned in this process here. That is, why is it that we can't unlock potential on the plant floor? Why is it that when the company, when the organization spends You know six or seven figures on some new technology solution it doesn't get wide adoption we don't realize real value and the answer was those solutions are top down most of them are top down and they're never focused on unlocking potential on the plant floor when you looked at the organizations that were able to do more with less were able to innovate uh, on the fly at a scalable level it's because they were focused on enabling people on the edge on the plant floor to innovate that, that's the fundamental difference. If your strategy is not about unlocking potential on the plant floor, your digital strategy, if your digital strategy is not about enabling people to do, to, to do more with less and then scale that across the business, then you don't have a strategy. I mean, at the end of the day. And that's what I learned through this process with my own eyes, as an electrician working with the actual operators, as an electrical technician working with both the OEMs and the and the operators, and as an engineer working with Ford Motor Company and with Nissan's product developers, working with the uh, Minster presses and Cincinnati centerless grinder manufacturers, and are you know build, doing actual machine builds for Borg Warner. That's what we did. We we built the machines, and then we also made the chain. I was the engineer in charge of the the stamping presses, the pin the pin machines, and the heat treat process. I moved to systems integration and started working with, you know, a who's who, uh, you know, um, you know, writing um, roaster curve programs for Starbucks, building, you know, automating automating the um, fluid maintenance process for Pioneer Natural Resources in South Texas, you know, fully automating paint system for a for a door manufacturer in in Washington. If if you look at the clients that I I took what I learned here and did full stack integration, so that is not just writing PLC control and not just writing HMIs and not just building SCADA systems, but figuring out a way to unify that data that's on the plant floor and convert that into information that's actionable, that happened through my 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 um, my career through systems integration. So. The arc of my career, how did I get to where I am today, where today I'm doing education and outreach for the for engineers. I'm, I'm teaching people how to lead and manage the digital transformation initiatives that I've done over the course of the last 12 years in my systems integration career. How it is that we're teaching electrical technicians, we're teaching engineers, we're teaching manufacturing manufacturing engineers to leverage technology to capture value for their employers i got to where i am today by taking what i experienced as a kid what i learned in my education to craft values and a mission and then i architected a plan the values have played a huge role in my career a huge role every time i am faced with a dilemma and when you are a leader in any industry you're going to be faced with many, many dilemmas. And a dilemma is when you have to choose between one or more choices and both both of them are hard. There's value that'll come out of either choice and there's a cost. That's a dilemma. Okay. I always go back to my values for every decision. So for example, earlier this week, um, in fact, just two days ago, I was on a phone call with my team, and a, and a major manufacturer in the, United, uh, in the United States, a global manufacturer. The kind of company everyone wants to work with. Going into that meeting, um, we, are, we have designed our IIoT architecture that we have deployed for companies all over the world to help them do more with less. You guys are gonna get a really good chance to see an amazing case study this year that demonstrates the value of the unified namespace technology-driven approach to digitally transforming organizations, okay? Most of our clients don't let us share this. We're we're blessed that that our client here in Dallas is gonna allow us to do the case study and and do a deep dive on what we actually did. So I was in a meeting this week with with the type of client that everyone wants to work with. And going into that meeting, my team and I, uh, they already have a digital transformation initiative. That digital transformation initiative is based on the a very common architecture we see you know if you yeah the the digital thread approach and it's and it's everyone's trying to do the digital thread if you if you google um, industry 4.0 digital transformation you are going to find basically two things you're gonna you well you'll find us and you'll find our community but outside of that us and in and, and the community that we that's been created through the MQTT spark plug b unified namespace approach to digitally transforming. You're gonna find two things. Commercials and white papers that don't tell you anything, not a fucking thing. And then you're gonna find all sorts of articles about IIoT, is a, is a, it's a pipe dream that never delivers. Digital transformation is a marketing term that never delivers. Here's why that is a prevailing thought. And that prevailing, that prevailing thought is driven by the Big OEMs like Rockwell and Siemens and all those huge organizations who approach digital transformation from the perspective of how can we profit from it? Now, I have no problem with companies making profit as long as they're providing value for that profit. But digital transformation, when whenever we have a groundbreak in technology, there is a there's an opportunity for large organizations to capture profit without actually providing anything until the market has been educated that you are ripping them off, until they figure out, until they've had a bad experience with you, there's an opportunity for these huge organizations to capture profit from you. And they do, okay? The digital thread, the concept of the digital thread is driven by those organizations. And the digital thread is the idea that you are going to um, manually make connections to all data points out in the field, map them into objects, thread that object up to the cloud, pass that object from your data lake into your analysis layer, into your visualization, and you will magically capture value across the entire organization by creating dashboards. That is not digital transformation, and here's why. Digital transformation is about unlocking potential on the plant floor and enabling people to innovate to, in order to help you do more with less, okay? That requires access to data, That requires an enablement of analysis of that data and that requires a mechanism for for the people who work on the plant floor, who work on the edge, we refer to it, for the people who work on the edge to take the value that they've captured on a case-by-case basis and put it back into an ecosystem that someone else can leverage. Mm -hmm. The digital thread technology does not enable that in any way, shape or form. It is a one-way pass of data, It, it doesn't. It, there's no mechanism to unlock. It creates a new silo, and that silo is the column through which the digital thread passes. Okay, It's the same approach that got manufacturers into the place that they're in today. So I had to have this very difficult conversation with a client this week, where their digital transformation group was objecting to our architecture primarily on political grounds and that is the person who's in charge of that initiative has already stuck their neck out and said this is the architecture we want to go with they've already they have a team of people who is dependent they're dependent upon using that architecture they've already built a team they've already got a budget you know those people have already said i'm going to deliver on this we know there's data data gaps and capability gaps that are gonna make them fall short of what it is the executive leadership um, are expecting on value. The time to value is gonna be very long. They can only go after high value targets because it's expensive to do digital thread. And there's gonna be data gaps and capability gaps. Most importantly, you will not get wide adoption on the plant floor because you are not enabling, if you are not making um, edge employees jobs easier, if you are not enabling them, then your initiative is for naught. And so going into this conversation, most organizations are not going to engage with that the leader of that initiative. What your most is systems integrators are going to they care about the sale. They they want they care more it's more important to get to get the sale and kick then the the and then kick the can down the road and and try to mitigate later. That is not our approach and that came from my values. Our values of transparency means I'm gonna tell you the truth for better or worse. Authenticity means I am going to be myself when I do it. I'm not going to use CPU power, I'm not gonna use any overhead to pre-process my message to you. What I'm gonna do is be authentic so that what I can do is put all of my brain computational power toward the problem at hand rather than worrying about how, your feelings, how you're gonna to react to what I'm saying. Being an expert means that I'm the brain surgeon and I have to tell you that, the, that the, your prognosis based on, the, based on the treatment that you are selecting is going to kill you, okay? Um, the, the, the servant leadership component is centered around, um, I'm gonna do what's best for you in spite of you sometimes. Okay. And the humility piece is I'm going to bring people with me who are good at all the things I'm not good at. Okay. Those values I acquired you. If you, what you want to know is how did I get to where I am in my career? I did. I got to where I am because I had a plan. But most importantly, I lived by values. I've lived by my values and my mission. One of the things that our chief experience officer told me after the phone call yesterday or, yesterday or two days ago with this specific client, which, by the way, we've had that phone call 20, 50, 100 times with clients, it was most people aren't going to tell the client the truth. And if you look at the Discord server, there's a great thread uh, in the Discord server this week about uh, the guy who works in the energy sector is saying, you know well how are you getting them to adopt this technology if they've written this specification mm-hmm. and and yes, and our, yeah and Juan is saying you just have to you just have to i have to deliver to their spec no, you do have to deliver to their spec but you can also offer an alternative option and you can lay out the reasons why their specification is flawed where it's flawed you can do that you can lay that out and offer an alternative option an alternative architecture that helps to mitigate where their gaps are. That you are the expert. It is your job to do that. It, it, you, you have, we have to stop being sales focused mm-hmm. and we have to be values and mission driven. Okay. And and that and part of how I got to where so I, I am is by being values and mission driven. Most, com- most organizations, you know, every company out there, all of the profit-driven companies, truly profit. By the way, I've made millions and millions and millions of dollars in my career. I could never work another day in my life. But I've never been profit-driven. And anyone who works with me will tell you I am not profit-driven in any way, shape, or form. What I, I hire people whose job it is to make sure that we, are, we stay in business. But they're, they're not profit-driven either. And I've made millions and millions of dollars being values and mission-driven. OK, the community we've created, the movement that we've created or that we've helped to foster is a huge movement. This, it's not, you know, we're leaders in the industry, but we didn't start this, mm-hmm. but we did aggregate it mm-hmm. that that we are definitely responsible for taking the great ideas that were already out there and, and putting them together and accelerating them. I have very, very difficult conversations with people all of the time on a weekly basis i am having really difficult conversations you know what happened that came out of that conversation this week the person who we thought would get upset got upset and he has a lot of authority and he's probably not going to like me but at the end of the day i had a plan i brought empirical data with me i was able to answer all of his questions he asked some very specific questions that were designed to trip me up And I had answers to those questions, and I had charts to show him the empirical data that clearly demonstrated that the architecture, there's gaps in the architecture that we can fill with the unified namespace technology-driven approach. And that conversation fostered three more conversations at levels above his pay grade. And it looks like that customer, who on our chart, by the way, we have a a whiteboard that has the, custom, the client the, or the organizations we think will not be in business 10 years from now. The reason it's all documented is so we can, we can measure how accurate we were in those predictions. This is one of those customers. We, we don't believe they're gonna be out of business. We, don't believe, we just don't believe they're gonna be a manufacturer 10 years from now. Um, we may have changed that. And in fact, it really looks like we're gonna change that. That our, our our team and our this community and I leveraged a member of the community mm-hmm. as part of that conversation. Um, in fact, he was he he accidentally. It, we, I ended up finding out that I you know we're working with this huge organization and he's work, and he happens to get introduced to him this week and together we can work together to make to keep them from making the mistake that we're seeing manufacturers make mm-hmm. every single day. So to get to, so there are people who say, Walker, I wanna do what you do, I wanna get to where you are, okay? So in summation, how do you do that? Well, number one, you have to ask yourself what your values are. And then you have to craft a mission. If if what we say resonates with you, adopt our values. Adopt our mission, our values of transparency, Uh, tell it like it is, authenticity, be who you are. Expertise, you're the brain surgeon, they're the, pre- they're the, the uh, patient. Don't pretend to be a brain surgeon, be a brain surgeon, okay? Um, and they're the patient. Humility, recognize what you're good at, but more importantly, acknowledge what you're not good at and sound around, surround yourself with people who are good at those things. Servant leadership, you have to deliver for your clients, sometimes in spite of your clients. Okay, and you do that by providing value. Providing value. So adopt our values to start, adopt our mission to help save and create middle class jobs in enter com- country name, your country. In my case, it's the United States and that's what our focus is. And then tweak those, those values and mission as you go through your career. Have a plan, chart a plan. Uh, join our mentorship program. When you're, when you're in this phase of your project, of your career, you're the engineer who wants to know how to get to where we are. The first thing you need to start to do is lean on the people who've been where you, you want to go, right? We created the mentorship program at IIOT.University and the digital mastermind program for two groups of people. Mentorship is really designed for the people that are in this phase of their career. The, the people who are trying to figure out they're trying to acquire the knowledge and the experience and the strategies to, to do this. For, for, in systems integration, you're working with many of these. You're working across industries. You're getting to see what works and what doesn't work at every layer, at every layer of the stack. Mentorship is all about acquiring that knowledge during this, this early phase of your career, okay? And digital mastermind is all about managing digital trans- transformation at this phase of your career. Leverage the Discord server, leverage the community, but most importantly, define what your values are, define what your mission is, and then have a plan to execute your mission. That's what's most important, okay? Again, you know, this, I could talk about the arc of my career for hours and hours and hours and hours because there there are so many stories there are so many details there are so many tough decisions I had to make it's very hard to leave a very good paying job to uh, you know when I worked at Newcore Steel that was a six figure job okay I made a lot of money at Newcore because of their compensation model when I moved to Tier 1 Automotive my my salary cut in half and I had to make a decision Do I really want to go from making $120,000 a year to $60,000 a year simply so I could get that experience on my way to becoming a systems integrator? That is a tough decision I made by comparing, by running it through my values and mission. The same way I did that this week with that customer. Okay, so that is my story, and I'm sticking to it. Video here. Hey. Watch the video here and here, or down here or down here. Mostly over here. I always see them pop out over here. Watch them there. We're back.